Welcome to another edition of the Dogger Pass Podcast. This is for UFC 296. I'm Paul Shaughnessy. Producer Megan is on the stairs. Cody Saftik is on the line. This episode of the Dogger Pass Podcast and all episodes of the Dogger Pass Podcast are brought to you by Prize Picks. Use promo code DOP when making a new account to get a match up to $100 on your first deposit. I owe you a shoey, Cody. I mean, I kind of gave you a little payback, you know. You had taken the dog the previous week. Son Kanan's just sitting there. We're disagreeing. And I saw your shoey. I mean, your boot steps up your game, but like, I had a few people reach out to me. I'm not going to name any names, but they were like, that was a pretty, that was a piss poor effort. Piss poor effort. You know, it took you like two minutes to like, you know, all the, I'm not going to do a tall boy out of it. Yada, yada, yada. It, it, was took, you, it took you a while to get her hell. done. There was like yeah, six minutes didn't. before we got into the first fight last week. And like half of it was like you delaying the inevitable, which was the shoot. I'm going to show you how, how, how we get her done around here. Show me how it's done. Don't ask questions how Paul acquired a child's size three boot. Um, but yeah, Paul Shaughnessy, getting her done, getting her done. This is only 355 <laughs> milliliters, so it isn't a tall boy. I, actually, I didn't have any booze at my place. Luckily, at the office here, there was a high noon sitting in the fridge, and I was just like, perfect. That's going down the hatch. So You should have done a tall boy since you're such a tough guy that uh, they're not Here's what I here's what I would just there like. Wasn't to say, right? of, obviously, there wasn't a tall boy of high shit. noon. Otherwise, I probably would have done one just to just to prove a point that I could. Obviously, I'm taking some shit. Let me explain something, right? So Tai Tuivasa, he's the Shui King. Shui King hits a Shui. Great. He's walking out. They're giving him like draft beers out of a small cup. It's a small cup of draft beer. And it, half of it ends up on him. So, like, I think one tall boy would be like four. You can hit four of these little draft beer cups. Bang, bang. Bang, bang, gone. People would say, oh, he's a legend. He hit four shoeies. But in actuality, he'd be like one tall boy. So it's not an easy task, man. Add some sippies, and then it got foamy. And then the boot was just straight up rank. But maybe not my finest effort. Maybe not my finest effort. Also, last week's card in general was just not my finest effort. Like bad, bad picks. Bad picks top to bottom. Thought milk cost would be way better. He lost, chased a little bit, took park, uh, the other park. Thought he won, but yeah, I lost split decision to Muniz, whatever. That one was a tough pill to swallow because we spent 10 minutes breaking down how Muniz would end up on his back and control him the entire time, but Park had more heart, and that would win him the fight. And the fight played out exactly like that. Muniz is on his back the entire time. Park has more heart. Park outlasts him. Judges didn't didn't get it right, so that's awful. Like, the only thing I hit was a shoey bet against Paul, so what's up? At least I hit that. Yeah, all I'm saying is, and like, you know, I'm not saying who said it, but maybe you lost a step. You're a dad now. You just you just lost a step. You used to be able to to fire them back. I'll show you. I'll show you how it's done. Bullshit. Paul Shaughnessy, a real uh, savvy veteran of the shoey circuit. All gone. All right, let's get into the All fights. Gone. We got Leon Rocky Edwards taking on Chaos Colby Covington in the main event. Leon Edwards is a minus one sixty favorite. Covington can be had. For plus 140. Covington's on like a 680-day layoff in between fights here. That's a little bit concerning. The guy's obviously got porn star cardio, as, as he likes to call it. Um, is able to set an absolute 
maniacal pace at all times. I understand why Leon Edwards is a favorite here. He's just taken on a guy with absolutely like, kind of the exact prototype that Colby Covington is in, in Kamara Usman, and he beat him twice. Minus one. I, I feel like I kind of missed the, the boat on the Leon Edwards at minus 160, though. I can totally see this fight going really, really close, getting to decision. We're going to have greasy theory alert, Cody. Donald Trump is going to be in attendance, allegedly, for this fight because him and Colby are buddies. Him and Dana are buddies. It's in Nevada where Dana has lots of influence. If this is remotely close, do you smell that? Do you smell that? Could be a funny little decision. Could be a funny little decision that could happen here. Um, I took a small little little poke at Colby Covington plus 250 by decision. Not because of like what I think that I think it's going to be rigged or anything like that. But the pace that he's able to set in fights is electric when he's on his to- when he's at the top of his game. And if this is remotely close, like we know Colby is not finishing a sandwich. Like he really doesn't have stopping power. He doesn't really finish anybody. It's been a long time since like he was working his way up the rankings. Since he's got to the top of the rankings, he's not finishing anybody. So I feel like his money line is kind of his decision prop to be perfectly honest. Just by the fact that like he's able to put up like 200 significant strikes over the course of 25 minutes, I'll edge ever so slightly to him, but like Leon Edwards is going to have the advantage on the feet. He lands the much more technical and powerful strikes of the two of these guys. Usman was able to rock Covington. I think it's a close fight. I understand why Leon Edwards is the favorite, but yeah, I took the small little poke on Colby Covington by decision and new. What's your take here? Yeah, yeah, I can't fault you there. First of all, all bias aside, I love Colby Covington. His character is outrageous. He talks a hell of a game. He goes out there and he performs. So if he won, great times. Thing is, is I can't get behind him with my bank because uh, just because I like the guy, right? In Colby Covington's case, he's got all the skills to win this fight. I just don't know if this is the right timing for him, per se. As you talked about, he's coming off a massive layoff. And I think that's not because nobody wants to fight him. That's not because he doesn't necessarily want really want to fight. I think it's his body is just absolutely wrecked. So like the elephant in the room amongst professional fighters who've been competing for a long time, is it necessarily CTE? It's this gut problem. It's like you bad stomach problem. Now, it could be from steroids. In his case, I'm going to say it's not. The bigger factor of it is the weight cuts. Your body should not be cutting weight. It should not be cutting weight drastically. It should be not cutting weight often. And then you should not be competing in a, in a physical and athletic endeavor after cutting all this weight. So these guys, especially that have wrestled for a long time and have cut a lot of weight and then have competed professionally in MMA and have continued to cut weight as adults, their bodies get banged up, their gut, you know, whether it be Crohn's, whether it be any type of other intestinal issue, uh, it becomes a problem. So Colby Covington, he's just about to turn 36 years old. And again, when you look at him, he fights once a year, man. He fought Twice in 2019, technically, you know, beats Robbie Lawler and then loses to Kamaru Usman. And then he takes a year off. He fights once in 2020 against Tyron Woodley, takes a full year off, actually 14 months, and fights Kamaru Usman. And then fight, and then has one fight in 2022. So one fight in 2020, one fight in 2021, one fight in 2022. This would be obviously his only fight of 2023. And, you know, maybe he fights once in 2024, but that's it. Again, not because he doesn't want to compete. 
but because his body's just not allowing him to. So he's coming off a long layup coming into this one. And I don't know that he's necessarily the best version of himself. I like the guy, not because of the character necessarily, but because of the fight style that matches the character. He talks a hell of a game and he backs it up. For my money's worth, he's one of the best welterweights I've ever seen. Him at his best. Leon Edwards, meanwhile, I didn't really care for the guy. Here's a guy that largely has defeated, I wouldn't say lesser-known talent, just mostly mid-level talent. And the problem about him is that he's super low output. Like All of these fights, right? He goes the distance with Powell Powell, 26 landed. Went the distance with Kamar Uzman the first time, 26 landed. Went the distance with Dominic Waters, 24 landed. Albert Tumanov, 16. Vincente Luque, 53. Brian Barberina, 23. Peter Sabata, 42. Donald Cerrone, this one was a career high for him, 84. Holy crap. Follows it up with 31 against Gunnar Nelson in a fight he damn near lost, right? So it, it's always been low output for him. But here's what I've zoned in on. He's still only 31. Obviously, he was losing that second Kamaru Usman fight before he landed that big head kick. But that third fight was like him at his best, him coming into his own. His takedown defense has very much improved. The first time he fought Usman, he got taken down six times, and he gave up 11 minutes of control time. The second time he fought Usman, he got taken down five times and gave up 10 and a half minutes of control time. The third time he fought Kamaru Usman, he got taken down four times. He gave up five minutes. That's it. So when he got taken down, he was getting back up. And again, that's four for 15 Usman went. Whereas in the second fight, he went five for 12. It was like 46% versus 26%. So, so again, here's a guy that's coming into the prime of his career, just won a world title. Oftentimes, the champion, they'll always say, like, damn, he's why is the champion even better? Once you get to the highest point of the mountain, you've got the money, you've got the funding, you've got the sponsors, you've got everything behind you, you've newly crowned champion, that's when you're at the peak. That's when you're fighting your best fights. Leon Edwards just seems to have come into his own. Kamaru Usman's still the man. Damn near beats Hamzat Chemaev. Damn near beats Hamzat Chemaev. Up a weight class on a week's notice. He's still the man. Leon Edwards just came out there and outclassed him. Now, it's a good fight. It's a competitive fight. But his get-up game looked way better. His takedown defense looked way better. And for the first time in his entire career, he eclipsed 100 significant strikes landed. In fact, he landed 120 and looked fresh as a daisy. So everything's trending towards Leon's getting better and better. And he's already a talented guy. And whereas Colby, Colby talks a great game. Colby's outrageous. But when you actually peel it back, Colby's last win is George Mazadal, who's retired and way past his prime. Prior to that, Tyron Woodley, who's retired from MMA, I believe, but very much past his prime. Robbie Lawler, RDA up at 170. 40-year-old Damian Maya in a fight he got seriously busted up and bleeding everywhere. Dunyan Kim, Ryan Barberina, Max Griffin. Like, where, where is Marquee Victories? He's a hell of a character, and no doubt he can fight. But the bottom line is he's known because of these two fights with Usman that he lost. And Edwards, meanwhile, he's coming off a pair of fights with Usman where he won. Now, that's MMA math, which doesn't obviously work. But the, the point that I'm getting at, the reason I'm going to back Edwards over my boy, Colby Covington, again, one guy's coming into his own. The speed's there. The striking's there. The volume's now there. The cardio's there. Takedown defense and grappling has been a bit of an issue, but it looks like it's short up. Versus Colby, who's been off damn near two years and fights once a year at best and has a bunch of health issues. Could he win? Absolutely. It's MMA. I just don't know that the deck stacked towards him. So I wish him all the best, but I got to go with Leon Edwards. Can't, can't fault you. Can't fault you at all. Just look forward to watching these two guys. Yeah, the- for sure. Uh, moving on down, we've got Alexander Pantoja taking on Brandon Royval. Minus 190 for the champ. Alexandre Pantoja plus 160 can be had on Brandon Royval, who you got? 
I'm going to go with Roy Val, underdog pick here. Ooh, this one's just going to be absolute chaos. Yeah, every Roy Val fight is absolute chaos, and most of the time they're hitting unders. I got a feeling that if he's going to have to win this fight, it's not going to be an under. He's going to have to drag Pantoja out into some later waters. So is he capable of doing that? We're, we're going to go have to see. He might have some durability issues. You've seen him knock down in the past. You've seen him dislocate his shoulder against Brandon Moreno. You've seen him get rear naked choked by Alexander Pantoja the first time they fought. So, like, yeah, I, I don't know that he's the wisest selection, but I, I like Roy Val. So him trading at Colorado, in Colorado and Denver, uh, being at Factory X Muay Thai, he, he's got solid cardio. These fights are ending in the first round. These fights are ending in two rounds. But if it was to get extended out, I think he can push one hell of a pace. He comes out there. He's fast. His striking was always one of these things where he puts a lot of offensive pressure on his opponents. But defensively, he's a massive liability. And I feel like he's tightening it up. He's being a little more patient. His ground game is hectic. Offensive wrestling, not bad. Defensive wrestling, terrible. But if he hits the ground, you're just in a world of shit. Like, guys can't hold him down. And that's what I'm zoning in on. The last time they fought, Pantoja, he's going to get the takedowns, right? He's obviously the better offensive wrestler. He's coming off a win over Brandon Moreno where he took him down six times. And in the fight versus Roy Valley, took him down. But Paul, my God, the guy just will not stick to the mat. Like, as soon as he hits the ground, he's popping up. He's getting onto a hip. He's creating a scramble. He's creating an angle. Pantoja takes his back, like, half a dozen times. The kid does not stop moving. Gets up and lays a licking on Pantoja. I think he wins back the first round, as far as I'm concerned. I'm thinking this is a good fight. Roy Val might be up one. Second round, he gets taken down again. He gets caught in a rear naked choke. And you can see the frustration on his on his face right away. Hits the mat. Clearly very frustrated. But it's like, kid, you were putting on a show. I think he's super talented. He's just got to dial it in. And now you see his last two fights. First round finishes. Eh. I'd like to see it get extended a little bit. But, man, his striking's looking good. The new Matus Nicolau fight. Knee up the middle. Left hand. Guns him over. Uh, fight prior to that. Matt Schnell. Quick little guillotine choke. He's a mad scramble on the ground. He's just going to be coming at you with a striking standing up. Pantoja's super talented, but he's low output. His cardio is not all that good. You watch back the Moreno fight. Sweet fight. Great fight. But it's one of those fights that like really could have gone either way. Moreno's outworking him. Moreno's outlanding him. But Pantoja would hit those one moments. Like he knocks him down in the first round, takes the first round. You know, he'll land a, a takedown, I think, in round three, you know, secures the round. Round five hits the takedown, secures round five. But I think with Roy Val, you hit the takedown, he's just scrambling back up again. And when it is standing, he's going to be on his face in his face applying pressure. So uh I understand why the champion's a favorite. I get it. I think it's gonna be an absolute scrap. I think that Roy Val is gonna be at have to be at the top of his game if he wants to win. But for an underdog pick, yeah, I, I don't mind it. So I'll take my first dog selection here with uh Brandon Raw Dog Roy Val. Interesting. Like I really didn't expect you to go in that direction. To be perfectly honest, I mean we're only what two fights or three fights removed from him getting taken down eight times and having to win a split decision over Rogerio Bonterine. He's already lost to this guy by second round submission. Um, I know Pantoja looks, t especially in the uh, yeah, sorry in the in the fight with with uh, Brandon Moreno. He has really bad body language, but he kept firing. He kept coming forward. He kept, you know, securing takedowns. I think, like, he looks a lot more tired than he is. Like, I remember, like, watching that fight, I was like, oh, my God, it looks like he's, like, absolutely falling apart here. But it's like, round five, he's still there. He's still going. It's like, his body language isn't great. My biggest problem with Roy Val here is, like, Pantoja's never been finished. 
And we're looking at a fight where Roy Val, I mean, yeah, he's been a potent finish over a much lower level of competition, typically. And he's taking on a guy, yeah, the champ, who hasn't been finished. It's just like, I know you say, like, oh, he's training at altitude. There's a lot of ifs. There's a lot of ifs. And in fairness to you, at least he's plus 160. Those yeah. ifs get covered by him being an underdog. If it was, if he was a favorite, it would be a totally different story, I'm sure, from your perspective. But it's a big if for me. It's like, if, is he able to keep that pace after three rounds? We've never seen him in the championship rounds um, at this level of competition. And Pantoja put up crazy numbers last time out. 129 significant strikes, a knockdown, and six takedowns against, you know, Brandon Moreno, who was considered the, the best guy in the world when he won the belt there. So, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's Pantoja. Um, I think Pantoja by sub would be interesting. I'm sure that's probably pretty. Eh, it's not a great number. It's plus 155. Eh, it's Pantoja for me, man. Um, I think his cardio issues are a little bit overblown. Um, he looked incredibly exhausted literally after the first five minutes. But it's like every single round you're like, no, no, he just has like bad body language. Um, but he's, you know, he's still winning rounds. He's still in there in an absolute dogfight. I don't know. Brandon Royval strikes me as a guy that, like, when it gets into a dogfight, sometimes, I'm not saying he's looking for the door, but the door finds him at the very least. And Pantoja seems to be an absolute dog. He proved that in the Moreno fight. So, no, we're, we have uh, some dissension here. Royval for you, Pantoja for me. We'll move on. We've got Shavkat Rachmanov taking on Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. Shavkat's a minus minus six fifty favorite, biggest favorite on the card. Stephen Wonderboy Thompson could be had for plus four seventy. Uh, your thoughts? This is an awful money line, man. Well, at least at the time of recording, six fifty. Good God. So we all love Rachmanov, right? He's undefeated. He does his thing. He seems to not have a whole lot of holes. Good grappling, solid cardio, solid chin. That's for damn sure. And uh, solid striking, right? Good volume, good output, decent ring IQ. What's there not to like about Shavkat Rachmanov? But again, it's not like he's been matched soft. It's just, he's, it's, it's a certain style. Is that you're fighting a certain style. Alex Oliveira is an old Brazilian who maybe wants to grapple a little bit. Michelle Prezera is definitely an old Brazilian. Who wants to grapple? Carlson Harris, uh, he's not old by no stretch, but yeah, f- fairly similar style. Neil Magny, Neil Magny's a little bit older and he's looking to grapple first. Those guys he's excelled over, those guys he's beaten. Jeff Neely's a big favorite. We all load up on him. I'm guilty of this. I think this is going to be a walk in the park. First round, the volume's there. Everything's looking good. Everybody's tweeting about how flawless this guy looks, how he's the next world champion. The second round against Neil, it's a way more competitive. He's not saying he's slowing down, but Neil's fine, starting to find the target. Not only that, Rachmanov has that wrestling. Right? Well, you think he has that wrestling because he has the grappling. The wrestling's not that good. He went 0 for 4 on takedowns against Jeff Neal. In fact, he never even came close to getting Jeff Neal to the ground. By the third round, again, not saying he's tired, but his hands are low. He's walking into punches, and Jeff Neal zips him with the left hand. Jeff Neal wins the third round. The second round's actually pretty close. But Rachmanov did win. And on the basis of winning the first and winning the second, he, he wins the fight. But, like, not a good performance. Wrestling looked bad. Defensive striking looked bad. 
Neil landed plenty of shots. And this is the same Jeff Neal who, yeah, there's always wonders if he's in shape and if he's motivated, but he fought Stephen Thompson for five rounds and couldn't even come damn near close to the guy. So, like, you excel against guys that are looking to grapple because, yeah, you're probably looking to grapple a little bit yourself. They're walking themselves into the clinch. You've got better striking. You can disengage. You can put up some numbers. That, that's all fine. That's all well and good. That fight with Neil, the wrestling looked off the table. Now, who fights Wonder Boy outside of a goddamn Superman punch off the cage by a lightweight Anthony Pettis? That cost me, man. Oof, that cost me. Bad memories. Outside of that, like, who, who outstrikes Stephen Thompson? Who, 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 who's beating this guy clean? You want to take him down. The blueprint has been written. It has been executed. You want to follow it to a T, just take the guy down. And Rachmanov probably does take Wonderboy down. But again, if we're overvaluing the wrestling based on some of these lower level guys he's beaten, and then the one step up against Jeff Neal, his real step up, uh, step up against Neal, looks a little bit flat. Like that same guy against Wonderboy in a Wonderboy is just going to move the perimeter. It's the big cage. He's going to have tons of space to operate with. He's, even though he's a lot older and he's not necessarily lost a step, but he's losing a step. He's still fast, man. He's hard to get a beat on. Rachmanov's got power, but he's not a murderous power puncher. If he doesn't clip him and put him down or find a way to cut him off and, and drag him to the ground, he could just be chasing all night. And maybe he still gets it done doing that. But 650. I don't know, dude. I don't know. So, like, on one hand, it's like, well, why don't you take the underdog? He's clearly the value pick. And, like, you're not wrong. The underdog is clearly the value pick. And I don't mind it. But, like, it's a It's just not my style. Like, I pick the guy I think probably wins more often than not. And why why am I thinking Rachmana wins more often than not? I don't know. Because he's younger? Because he's got a little bit more? Because the threat of the takedown certainly is there. Because he probably did learn from that Jeff Neal fight. Like, those are things I'm telling myself. But even then, I couldn't get him to 650. Like, on a personal level, like 325 is as far as I would probably be willing to pay on him. And even that would not be a great, you know, it certainly wouldn't be the value play. So, Shavkat's the pick, man. But 650, everyone assumes he's on the top ticket. And I don't even know that he makes the second ticket, to be quite honest with you. Like, I, I got some worries about him. This price is off. Price is wild. Absolutely. Well, I think the takedowns are going to be there early and often is the problem. And that's why I'm not really, pull- you know me, I love betting underdogs, but it's like Steve Wonderboy Thompson at this stage in his career. I mean, coming off of performances, literally everybody takes him down. And um, Gilbert, Burns Gilbert Burns and Bilal takes- Muhammad, dude, those guys are the creme de la creme. Kevin, like Kevin always- Holland took him down two times. And, and Kevin Holland could have beat him if he just chose to stick to that but game. But he didn't. Plan. He wanted to He wanted to bang. He wanted to go... <laughs> Tiff for Tad, he wanted to play karate <laughs> against the literal like karate sensei or whatever the hell they call themselves. Um, yeah. I think Shavkat will have the takedowns. I think the time to fade Shavkat is coming as he's going to break into this top five or so that is just riddled with, uh, with top end wrestlers. It's just not the fight. Where I see it. But I I understand some of your points there. It's just like, well, where was the wrestling against Jeff Neal? It really wasn't existent at all. He went 0 for 4 on the takedowns against Jeff Neal. That is a really horrendous look. But I think Stephen Wonderboy Thompson at this stage in his career, big cage, you made a good point there. Probably is going to help Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, but still can't get there. I think Shavkat will find the takedowns, will control, maybe finds a submission. 
Um, I mean, if, if Stephen Wonderboy Thompson was able to hang out for three rounds underneath Gilbert Burns, the, the submission is no guarantee for Shavkat whatsoever. And yeah, Shavkat versus Jeff Neal was like, that was a pretty competitive fight. I know like the stats will tell you that like Shavkat was winning really, really cleanly. But then he, what, he got the, like the standing, standing triangle or whatever to, to finish the job there. It was a weird, weird choke. Um, that fight kind of exposed that, like, may, you know, this guy's young. He's going to be making improvements every single time that he's out there. But it kind of was a little bit of, uh, without getting burned on, a little bit too much too soon. I think this is, like, a very well-crafted matchup selected by the matchmakers probably to get rid of Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, who gets paid a whole bunch of money. You know, look out for Stephen Wonderboy in, like, the next PFL tournament. I could see that kind of working out for him. Um, but yeah, Rachmanov is the pick. I have no intention of betting that fight, though, to be perfectly honest. The the money line's crazy. The props are crazy. If he comes out and he absolutely destroys them, then onwards and upwards, it's, you know, there's only a handful of guys that are left, uh, and they're all at the top of the mountain if you're Shavkat. So, yeah, we'll see how it plays out on Saturday. Another kind of interesting matchup where I think the matchmakers are doing their best to pinpoint a, uh, a veteran to take on a prospect, somebody that they want to sell, is Patty Pimblett taking on Tony Elkakui Ferguson. Pimblett's a minus 300 favorite. Ferguson's plus 240. Ah, Tony. Tony's so cooked, Pat, Cody. Like, he's, it's... You know me. I, I think resident, I'm probably the resident Patty Pimblett hater here. I've faded him against much lesser men than, uh, than Tony Ferguson, and it's cost me. Don't get me wrong. But it's like there's been moments in all of those spots where you're just like, I mean, the Jared Gordon fight, frankly. Actually, no, that was the one time I actually bet him because I knew that the, that the fix was potentially in, and it was. I bet him live um, after round two when he could have, in theory, been down two rounds, but they're relatively close. Even the Jordan Levin fight wasn't all that pretty. Rodrigo Vargas, like, it was looking ugly for a little bit. He found the submission. Tony Ferguson in a different generation would be a totally different spot here, but it hasn't been the same since, since the knee injury, since 2019. Hasn't won a fight. And that was against Donald Cerrone, who was kind of on his way out the door at that point in his career. Um, losing by arm triangle choke to Bobby Green, who is pretty much strictly a, a boxer, was a horrendous look for what Tony Ferguson can bring to the table here. There's no doubt in my mind that like Tony's could have some decent success in the exchanges on the feet here. His wrestling is like historically pretty solid. That's why people thought he had a chance against Habib. He didn't. But uh, and Patty's offensive wrestling isn't great. But getting subbed by Bobby Green leads me to believe if Patty gets him into a position where he's got his back, Patty's going to be able to sink in a choke as well against this guy. So I don't love the money line at minus three hundred. But it's uh, Patty the Batty for me. I think Tony's just absolutely cooked. What about you? 
Yeah, honestly, I got mixed emotions about this one. I kind of want to fade Patty Pimblett, but I'm also the same train of thought as you is that Tony Ferguson is absolutely cooked. But just bear in mind, like, Tony Ferguson is cooked on the basis of this six-fight losing streak. This six-fight losing streak includes Justin Gaethje, who, whom he out, or he got outstruck 143 to 136. Went into the fifth round, he landed 136 significant strikes against Justin Gaethje. Fought Charles Oliveira, the champion. Fought Benil Dariush, Michael Chandler. Nate Diaz, Bobby Green. Man, those guys are tough to beat, man. Patty Pimblett, meanwhile, Patty Pimblett, meanwhile, got taken down by Luigi Vendramini. He got boxed up by Kazulo Vargas. He got taken down by Jordan Levitt three times, and he robbed Jared Gordon. Those are his four fights in the UFC. So does Tony Ferguson lose to any of those guys? Probably not. Does Patty Pimblett beat any of the guys that Tony Ferguson's lost to? Probably not. So... I, I don't know. It's difficult to say. Tony Ferguson is shot. Yeah, no doubt. But like, how shot is he? <laughs> because like a shot version of Tony Ferguson is probably still going to be competitive against Patty Pimblett. Patty Pimblett's not really shown anything. I would honestly think like, how good does Jared Gordon do against Tony Ferguson? Like, that seems like a competitive enough matchup. But you wouldn't say, oh, Jared Gordon's a three to one favorite. Like, no, nah. I'd be like, yeah, Ferguson could win that fight because he's not fighting the level of competition that he's been fighting. So Mixed emotions. Now, Nate as Diaz. I say that, because I no, Nate I know, Diaz I know. We'll talk about that right bad. now. We're gonna talk about that right now. Right. We're gonna talk about that right now. Um, I, I agree. I agree in that it's a six fight losing streak, and you can give him a pass, which I've been trying to do. But I give him a pass on the Gaethje fight because it was competitive, and he landed a ton of strikes. I give him a pass on the Charles Oliveira fight. So he just got taken down and controlled. And it's Charles. He got taken down and controlled by Benil. Michael Chandler is, you know, one of the best, and he was beating up Michael Chandler. He was looking good in the first round against Michael Chandler. And then he gets jungle kicked in the face in the second. It was crazy. The Nate Diaz fight, though, you're absolutely right. That's the one where you can't give him an excuse. He looked awful top to bottom. His striking was off. His timing's off. He always had quirky rhythm, but it was just like he's walking into stuff. Takedown offense. This is a guy that wrestled in college. Yeah, you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it. Noah built. Where's the ankle pick? Where's the suplex city? Where's all this shit that he talked over time? Like, nah, non-existent. The ground game, okay? Khabib don't want to take this guy down, Triangle City. Charles exposed him. Benil exposed him. Anybody that sits in this guy's guard is probably going to have a whole lot of success. And then Diaz, just for shits and gigs, you know, just to finish him off, the old dog, he chokes him out. Now he gets Bobby Green. Well, Bobby Green's going to box his face off, and he did. And Tony came forward. Tony landed a shot or two. You know, you can you can say the eye poke affected things, but... Again, he just looks so off. His rhythm's off. His timing's off. His speed's gone. Looks like he's walking in sand. There's no power. Never really had power, but at least he had that tenacity where he could land 100 significant strikes and just wear you down. It's like he's not the same guy. And then Bobby Green chokes him out. So, like, now now it's like, yeah, dude, he's gone. Now, the David Goggins thing is super interesting because people will be like, man, this is not what he should be doing. He needs to get in with training partners and coaches and all that. Like, I disagree, dude. I actually disagree with that. Tony Ferguson never actually trained at a gym with coaches and training partners. That's never actually been him. He is a wild man. He is a weirdo. Like, that, he does things to the, you know, he beats to the to the sound of his own drum. I, I, I can dig it. It's hard to get a rhythm on. It's given him success. But if you, like, look into his personal life, which most people don't care to do because they're just looking at the fighter for what they are as the fighter, like, he's had a whole bunch of mental health issues. He's had issues with his kid. He's had issues with his wife. He's had some financial issues. Obviously, the interviews, he seems like a weird guy. Yeah, in his personal life, things are not necessarily going great for him. So he gets drinking, and Tony Ferguson's a clean lifestyle kind of guy, right? But he gets drinking, and his last two fights, he looked awful. 
Now, he self-admittedly says, you know what? I've been poisoning myself. My life's not going so good. And so what gym and training partners that are going to be, oh, Tony Ferguson, former title challenger, former interim champ, they're just going to try to buzzsaw him. Well, what, what gym and training partners and coaches are going to revitalize this guy? Nobody. But a guy like David Goggins, who's more of a mind coach, who can get to this guy to a level of self-belief, that's what he needs, dude. His cardio solid. His cardio's always been solid. His chin's solid. His chin's always been solid. It's having him believe in himself and like be clean and be in good shape. And if he can push a pace, then he'd be a problem. Where does Patty beat him? Striking? Okay. Is Patty going to throw up 100 significant strikes? Has Patty got the cardio to go hard? You know, is Patty got the offensive wrestling? Couldn't take down Jared Gordon. Is he going to take down Tony Ferguson? Like maybe Ferguson makes it interesting, but the reason why I just can't do it is partly what you're saying. The last two fights, he looks all the way shot. Even if he's sober, even if he's got his shit back together, like he looked so bad. It would be very hard to back him at this point. And then then the part reason that I'm going with is that Patty don't even really need many takedowns. He just needs a couple. And then you can hang out and guard. Like what I've seen from Tony is that he has no ability to get back up. If you look at the Charles fight, Charles scores three takedowns. Just needs three. One in every round. And he got 11 minutes of control time. Top game, right? The Benil Darius fight, very next fight, he got taken down three times. And he gave up 11 minutes of control time. Once you get him down, that's it. And Patty's a big boy. You know, he's big for the weight class. He's a strong guy. I think he's going to come in here. I think he's going to have a strength advantage. I think that even though his wrestling's not great, probably, like you says, ends up pushing him up against the cage, finds his way to the back, drags him to the mat, hits a takedown of sorts. And then once he's on top, He'd be hard to move. And the last thing, because I've said some nice things about Tony, not really said anything nice about Patty. Patty explodes, dude. He comes from Cage Warriors where he's making no money, right? He's a young kid with a flamboyant personality that nobody realistically knows who he is. And he debuts in the UFC. He beats Luigi Vendramini, right? He makes $12,000 and $12,000 for that fight. It's no money. He comes back and he beats Rodrigo Vargas. Doesn't even look that good. He talks so much shit. And he gets Barstool behind him, and he gets these major sponsorships. And the UFC says, yo, we're on board. And he fought three times in 2012. He fought Vargas, he fought Jordan Lovett, he fought Jared Gordon. It's not, you know, that's a lot, man. You fight three times in a calendar year. You had five fights in 19 months. You've got all these people that are believing you, all this money, all this marketing machine. He looked flat against Jared Gordon. He's taken a year off now. And that that is huge for him. Been training with good guys. He hasn't ballooned up. He hasn't been partying. He's still only like 28 years old. The year off will refresh in him. And I'm expecting to see a good version of Patty, better than the one that we saw against Jared Gordon. And I don't know that I can say that I'm expecting Tony Ferguson to look any better than he did against Bobby Green. I'm hoping David Goggins has got him on key, but like, is, is, is that really what we're going to go with? Would be hard to, right? Would be hard to, to pick him on that sole basis, so... Got to go, Patty. This is another case in point where it's like the money line don't make sense. So, yeah, he's the pick. But, like, I don't know how I'm going to attack this one quite yet. Maybe the over-under? Yeah. Patty by sub, what's that? Do you know? Do you know off the top don't of your know. head? I, no, no, not, not, not off the top of my head. But I'm going with plus the theory. Plus 250, from... plus 275. Seen crazier things. I mean, Bobby Green submitted Tony Ferguson. Not crazy. Not crazy at all. Um, all right, let's move on down. We've got Ian Gary taking on Vicente Luque. Gary's a minus 370 favorite. Luque can be had for plus 300. These guys must have, like, trained together a bunch, right? Oh, yeah. 
for sure. Kill, like in kill the past, like, there are people yeah. out there that know what this looks like when they, you know, when they sparred together. Um, Gary's taking a whole bunch of heat in like the MMA scene right now um, about his living arrangements. It's none of my business. I'm old. I don't really care about any of that stuff anymore. Is he a little bit weird? Do I like how he promotes himself all the time? Not necessarily, but I'm old and crotchety, so it is what it is. But, uh, you know, we're not too far removed from everyone be very, very concerned, myself included, about Vicente Luque and, like, his brain bleed and the fact that he's taking so much damage. Striking defense has always been a little bit of a question mark. Interestingly, Gary's six foot three here but actually is giving up an inch in reach which is like pretty short arms for for ian gary and long arms i guess for vicente luque considering gary's four inches taller than vicente luque um i hate ian gary but i understand why he's the favorite here so he is my pick reluctantly cody Maybe you could change my mind if you pick Vicente Luque, but I think Gary wins again. He gets on the microphone. He has like a cringeworthy, you know, speech that about how he's the greatest person on earth and yada, yada, yada. And I die a little bit inside, but at least I won't lose money on him this time. Yeah, that's fair. My thing is, is I think I'm going to take Luke K and wow. I can present a, I can present an excellent argument, but that doesn't change anything that he'll probably end up still losing and Gary's going to move on with his career. So the question on everybody's mind is clearly, is Ian Gary's wife a gold digger? Listen, doesn't matter. Have you seen her? She could have half my money in my assets. All jokes aside. Have you seen her? She could have half my money and half my assets. I don't know. Whatever he's doing in his personal life, that's all up to him. We got to look at for what it is, and it's a fight, right? And Ian Gary has this thing that we've seen time and time again in the UFC and MMA in general is that he's 26, he can talk one hell of a game, he's undefeated, and he's completely unproven. And people will make him a minus 370 favorite over credible guys that are coming off main events in the UFC who have fought in some of the best of the division. And all of a sudden, he's a favorite. So I, I don't love that. Now, Conor McGregor, Conor McGregor was that Irish star. He talked that great game. He had that striking. He came over. He won. He stayed with John Kavanaugh that whole time. So he had that coach that understood him. They made excellent game plans together. They won big, high-profile fights. Gary doesn't have that. Gary started off in judo. He's a judo black belt. He doesn't come from a striking art. Um, he transitions over to MMA. His first MMA coach, he leaves him. He goes to John Kavanaugh's. He ends up over there at SBG Ireland, but he ends up getting the boot. At that point, he comes over to Florida. Things don't work out for him in Florida. He's bounced to now like four. He goes over to Renegade MMA, Leon Edwards' gym. Leon has a problem with him. They boot him out of that gym. So, like, now he's kind of doing his own thing. Like, he's got his nutritionist. He's a vegan. He's got his super hot wife, 10 out of 10 supermodel mega babe, who apparently can write a book as well. What's wrong with this girl, man? She sounds like a winner. Anyways. Yeah, but, like, what? what's his training at? What's his loyalty like? And he's still only 26. He's not a guy that's, like, learned it all, done it all, knows stuff. He's like a young fighter in the blossoming stages of his career that like needs proper guidance. Now you look at the fights themselves. It's like McGregor was just ice and fools, man. Actually, people, you, when you look at like the, the list of competition, I just want to bring it up because people, for whatever reason, just love to shit on Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor's fights in the UFC when he came over record. 
Yes, Marcus Brimage, everybody remembers that one, was the first fight off the hop, knocks out Brimage. Brimage had like 10 fights in the UFC at the time, okay? It's his second fight in the UFC is Max Holloway, future champion. His third fight was Diego Brenda. was a stud on the Ultimate Fighter, stud within the division, still fights to this day, nasty fighter. Then he fights Dustin Poirier. He fights Dennis Seaver, who is like a 10-year veteran of the division, who nobody went out and stopped, smokes him, and then gets Chad Mendes, Jose Aldo. All, all he fought was like the best guys of the division that were presented to him. He earned it as far as I was concerned. Ian Gary looked shaky against Jordan Williams until he caught him with one second left in the first round. He looked shaky against Darian Weeks, who took him down and controlled him for three minutes. He got taken down by Gabe Green and controlled for three minutes. He got taken down twice by Song Kanan and knocked down. And then he head kicks Daniel Rodriguez, who's cut from the UFC and 38 years old. And he beats Neil Magny. Neil Magny was 36 years old and took the fight on one week's notice to replace Jeff Neal. Which one of these is the biggest win of his career, Paul? Probably the Magny fight? The 36-year-old Magny who took the fight on a week's notice? I think Nakino D-Rod was like, okay, D-Rod is not an easy guy to finish. No, you're absolutely right. He just got finished by choke by Neil Magny in his fight prior to that. And then I don't know why they cut him. I really don't. But he's had some weight trouble issues. He, he didn't look good. He's a little bit older. I have no idea why they cut him. I like D-Rod. But if you were to tell some, if you were just to t explain to somebody, this Ian Gary guy, he's the next big deal. He's the next big deal. Like, what's the, what's the win? What's the performance? D-Rod, dude. He beat Daniel Rodriguez. Is that what sells him? Is that what makes him the man? We're believing that much because he head kicked? You're gonna an make me act up and bet like, Luke if you keep talking. I know, I know. That's what I'm. That's what I'm trying to get out of my own head because I'm. I don't need it. to. I don't need much convincing, Cody. I don't want to bet Ian Gary by any stretch of the imagination. Now you come on here, you tell me plus three hundred, plus three hundred five underdog Vicente Luque. Like I'm about to. I'm about to throw money at this. Yeah, so so let's bring up some other excellent points, right? So they've matched him up super soft, but none of these guys could be considered decent wrestlers or grapplers. But he did get taken down by Darian Weeks, gave up three minutes of top control. Gabe Green gave up three minutes of control, and two against Song Kanan, right? But Vincente Luque had shot hasn't shot a takedown in almost six years, going into that last fight against RDA. Wrestling is not existent. His grappling, yeah, we know it's tight. We know he's got a nasty Darce choke. Caught, Mike, caught Michael Chiesa, caught a couple of guys, got a nasty Darce choke, this guy. We know that he can grapple, but like his wrestling, he's never taken down anybody. And then the brain bleed, and then, geez, lots of damage. And I, I hear people saying, oh, he's old and he's chinny. He's old and he's chinny. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He's chinny, but he's only 31 years old, man. And like chinny not, he can't take a punch. Chinny just, he's taken so many punches that it's like, you know, maybe a gust of wind's going to knock him over at some point. So a little bit worrisome, but Ian Gary's not exactly some murderous power puncher. Like, yeah, okay, caught D-Rod, you know, head kick, snapped out of there. Couldn't finish Magni on a week's notice. Took Song Kanan late into the third round. Like, I don't know. I don't know. But anyways, I think the camp says, listen, dude, you're only 31 years old. You've got all the skills. Stop getting into these rock'em, sock'em robot battles with Mike Perry and Brian Barberena. Like, let's use a little bit of skill. So they match him up against RDA, who's a, a, a fantastic wrestler, a fantastic grappler. And he scores eight takedowns. His cardio looks solid. It was a five-round fight. This is only a three. So he should, in theory, be able to push more of a pace. His striking is good enough that, yeah, he's not going to get swarmed by Gary, by Gary early. He'll take a few punches. He'll land a few punches. But if he can lean on him and he can grind on him and he can keep this 
this threat of the takedowns going, it's going to be a problem. As you mentioned, both guys are at Killcliff, right? The fight gets announced, and Killcliff tells Ian Gary, you're not welcome here. Not American top team, you can come when he's not here. Not we'll split the gym. Not we'll put up a curtain. You're not welcome here. Goodbye. So the whole camp, yeah, they know him. And I would think, hey, dude, you've seen this flashy kid come in. He talks big game. He's big on social media. By the way, they all said they didn't like him. And they said the reason they don't like him is no loyalties to anybody. Jim jumps and he would come in with a, with a camera crew. And it would basically be like, hey, I'm here to work mitts and do drills and film it for social media. Like that's that's who he was. Meanwhile, Vincente Luque has been a member of the Black Zillions. He was on Ultimate Fighter, American Top Team versus the Black Zillions. He's been a member of Jacko Hybrid Athletics. He's been a part of Imperial Athletics. He's been a part of Hard Knocks 365, the Black Zillions. Uh, literally every incarnation of the group consisted of Vincente Luque. So all the coaches are on his side. And I would think in working with Gary, you would know the kid's flashy. The kid's got some moves. The kid did this and that against Neil Magny. Sure, but grind on him. Grind on him would be the way to get it done. And if Luque can grind on him and Luque can keep it competitive with the striking, he just went a hard five rounds. This is a three-round fight. He can use a little more controlled aggression, push a bit of a pace, Lean on this kid. Again, he's got the experience. He may have the wrestling. He has some grappling. He's got a he's got a lot going his way that I could see it being a 50-50 fight. I could see Ian Gary being a minus 145, a minus 155, like 370. That's kind of my issue with this card. Like the favorites are just blown up, dude. Mm-hmm. Oof, blown up. And I'm not betting against Ian Gary because of this personal uh, stuff that's been going on lately. That I don't care about. I really don't. I'm, I'm looking at the fight itself. But last thing I'll leave you with, and we can just move on. How does that affect a guy's psyche? Like, he's just been dealing with nonsense for the last two weeks. And now he's got to make weight. Now he's got to fly over here. Now he's got to get in there and, you know, stare at a man that wants to take his soul and then go out there and perform against guys that know and have trained against him. Like none of this bodes well for confidence. And he's a confidence-based fighter. He's full of himself. And I think he's starting to realize he may be full of shit. So if it, that's the that's what happens, Luke is going to be there to capitalize. Luke, not shot. Tony Ferguson, maybe shot. So that's why I'm not really fading a Patty Pimblet, but I I I think I'm willing to fade an Ian Gary. High up on my list of priorities this week and bet-wise? No, probably not. But using him as a favorite on tickets, also not going to happen. I'm flipping my pick. I'm joining you on on Luque, and I'm going to bet Luque so I can hate watch this fight and hopefully profit. Let's go, Vicente. I mean, I mean yeah, eight takedowns yeah. against RDA. That is, that is huge. That's huge. Usman and Colby Covington did it, but who else? Like you got to be pretty damn good to do that. Yeah. The, the path could be there, and I imagine, you know, having the, the smart team behind him at Killcliffe or whatever the hell they're calling themselves these days. They change it every year. I imagine they know that is going to be the best path to victory for Vicente here. So run it back with the, the game plan that you had against RDA and make this very interesting. If you just hang out at range, you could still win the fight, don't get me wrong, but... It's a hell of a lot more dangerous. All right, we got Bryce Mitchell taking on Josh Emmett. Bryce Mitchell is a minus 240 favorite. Emmett can be had for plus 200. Am I missing something here, Cody? I haven't bet this fight, but, I mean, is Josh Emmett just going to be insanely easy for Bryce to take down? Because I feel like this is a super dangerous fight for Bryce if this stays upright. And Emmett, obviously, training Team Alpha Male. 
He's never really been like the greatest offensive wrestler. I suppose not too many people have like really actively tried to take him down, but I don't know. Is Bryce just going to be able to maul this guy pillar to post? Because when they're hanging out at range, like Emmett showed me enough that I think he can make this a very tough night for Bryce Mitchell. And Emmett's plus 200. So right now my official pick is Josh Emmett at plus 200. What do you think about this fight? Okay, so I'm not going to lie. When the fight got announced, because Bryce Mitchell's coming in on like, oh, 10 days notice. The fight got announced, and I seen the line drop. I'm thinking the exact same thing as you. I'm like, well, am I missing something? Why is Bryce Mitchell this big of a favorite? Like, Josh Emmett, again, he's from Team Alpha Male. He's a collegiate wrestler. He knows how to wrestle. If he can keep this fight standing, and on paper, just on paper, on paper, he's a better wrestler than Bryce Mitchell. If he could, in theory, keep this fight standing, yeah, he's got much better power, much better striking. Sorry, he kind of loads up on that right hand, but it's ferocious. And I know people will say he hasn't actually knocked anybody out in four years, but he scores a whole lot of knockdowns. He's buzzed a whole lot of people. He's got power. The thing is, is that he's almost solely reliant on this nasty explosiveness. Like the guy's fast twitch muscle you know, uh, athlete, everything is just bang explosiveness, bang explosiveness. And as he's gotten older, I've been waiting for him to kind of plateau or hit a wall to his credit. He's carried it. But again, he's another one of these guys, not quite shot like T Ferg, but you look at the last two fights. It's like, he's definitely missing something. The fight with the air tough guy, right? So you want to give him a pass, but he got kind of battered in that fight. He slowed down. He got the takedown in the second round, ran to a triangle choke. Bad news. The very next fight against Ilya Tapuria. Uh, I don't know champ. why it was. Future yeah, champ, it, and it was fight of the night. They robbed Trevor Peak and uh, Jose Mariscal Chepe. Yeah, only because only because Josh Emmett didn't die. It's the only reason that and, ended up being fight of the night because it was pretty one sided. Emmett, yeah. See, and then and then this is where I'm starting to fall off the Emmett train because it's like he looked way slower. Tapuria dog walked him out, landed him one fifty two to eighty. So like damn near doubled him up. But it was the three takedowns, and more so than the three Tapura takedowns, it went three for three. Like he got him down every time he decided he wanted to take him down. And then looking back at Josh Emmett, Emmett doesn't actually fight almost anybody who's a wrestler. He's fought in two wrestlers, right? Those guys being Mursad Bektic and Ricardo Lamas. But he knocked both of those guys out in the first round before they even shot any takedowns. Everybody else has been largely a striker. When he does have to defend takedowns, not so good. He's actually got a 46% takedown defense. Now, Bryce Mitchell actually doesn't have great takedown defense himself, but uh, Bryce, it's because he'll give up the takedown to create a scramble and then get back up and make you work. Emmett doesn't want to work. He wants to conserve himself. He likes to operate at a slow pace. He likes when you hang in front of him, hang in front of him, and he hits you. Michael Johnson's up two rounds on him. Michael Johnson's out working him. He just happens to slam him in the third round and knock him out. He's not prone to getting falling behind on the scorecards, but then he relies on that big power and that big explosiveness. So I think with Bryce Mitchell, he showed against Ige, like even with one eye, the kid is Arkansas tough. He can take one hell of a punch, man. Now, him coming off a week's notice, concerning, but not that concerning considering... He trains himself at like the same pace at the same place with the same guys all the time. So it's not like he needs a camp. Like he's, he's basically, this is how he trains every day. He's got a routine. He's got a schedule. He farms. He trains at night. That's what he does. And so he's looked good in the past. He looked awful against Deporia, but stomach bug, you know, maybe he was sick. The Ige fight is striking. looked abysmal as ever, but five takedowns. He gets the position very physically strong. 
I feel like a younger version of Emmett, if he could sprawl and brawl him, he might be able to box him up. He might be able to land those bigger, more impactful shots that sway the judges. He's got more volume. He's a much better striker. The one issue is the takedown defense. And for a guy that comes from a wrestling-heavy camp, who's wrestled in college, the defense part of his wrestling isn't quite there. So, yeah, I do have a feeling that Bryce Mitchell ends up just getting the takedowns, lies on, not lies on him, but grinds on him, you know, be heavy, put a pressure on him, and break him down. Break him down and secure the victory. Inside the distance, I don't know, maybe. I mean, listen, Yari submitted him. I could see it happening. That being said, Deporia just put an absolute mauling on him. And he lived to tell the tale, but that that's the last point, and then we can move on, is that he's coming off of one of the worst beatings you've ever seen in your life, it's and true. he is 38 years old. He's a few months shy of his 39th birthday. Like, Do you expect him to come back as a, a better version, as an improved version? No. Bryce Mitchell, do you expect him to just continue to beat these kind of guys and advance himself in the division and move up the ladder? Yes, he's a contender, so... I don't love the money line. I sound like a broken record there, obviously. But the, this is one of the ones I, yeah, I can't I can't get behind it. I got to go with the favorite, Bryce Mitchell. I mean, if we play MMA math, the last thing I'll say about that fight. Bryce Mitchell against Ilya Toporia was far worse, I think. Yeah. Like, yeah, that was just not <laughs> competitive whatsoever. Right. Emmett got absolutely trounced. He got taken down. He got battered around. At least he got... You know, to the end of that fight. Now he kind of got in one of those situations where, like, depending on the ref that's in there at whatever time, we've seen fights stopped for far less. Trust me, I was on Toporia to win inside the distance and was very, very triggered that night because not only did it bust that ticket, but it busted, yeah, the Trevor Peak uh, fight of the night ticket, which I think was a pretty much a shoe in. If Toporia gets like the third round finish there, Toporia would have ended up getting a performance bonus and the fight of the night would have been what the people wanted is what it is. I think Dana was busy trying to get Zuck and Musk to fight on his card. That was never actually going to happen anyway. Not sour, not mad is what it is. All right, moving on down. We've got Arena Aldana taking on... Uh, Carol Rosa, minus 185 for Aldana, plus 160 for Rosa. Seems like everybody who wants to take down Arena Aldana finds success in doing so. Like, her takedown defense been kind of, uh, not even kind of, like, pretty consistently bad. There's been, like, uh, Irina Aldana, when I made, like, the boards on, like, or Tuesday morning, it's been a bit of a move this afternoon. Move to minus 185, plus 160. Obviously, somebody out there is probably touting or, or moving the line uh, in Rosa's favor here. And you know, the more I kind of look into it, it's like if Carol Rosa can fight with a little bit of wrestling urgency, I can definitely see how she can make this tough. She could totally win the fight on the feet as well. She's, you know, multiple times... Been able to go over 125 significant strikes, which, uh, I mean, if that if the fight plays out that way, probably be pretty competitive. But I can understand why the money is coming in on Rosa a little bit here, just in the respect that, um, yeah, Ren Aldana has not had too much. I, I'm not even bringing up her last fight, obviously taking on Amanda Nunez. She was outgunned, outmatched, probably in every single range of that fight. But you go through all of the other fights in her in her careers, like when people try to wrestle her, she hasn't put up too too much resistance. So 
I'll go. Uh, I'll I'll go with the CF dot model here and uh, and side with Carol Rosa. What about you? CF dot model all day long. Dogger pass all day long. Both of these girls are massively untrustworthy. Massively untrustworthy. Both of them are skilled. Both of them can win, and both of them are capable of going out and losing to the bottom of the barrel, Paul. Uh, massively concerning from both sides. Whoever would be the underdog, that's who I'm looking to back. But you can't just say that. We need a little bit of analysts here. So yeah, let's let's jump into it. Irene Aldana, you mentioned it. She can't stop a takedown. She's got the power advantage over Rosa, but she's not exactly high output. She's capable of being high output. But for the most part, like she's so worried about getting taken down that she's freezing up a little bit. And she's being a little bit gun shy. Looking at her last three fights, she beat Tiana Santos, which I guess was way better than Carol Rosa did against her, but we're not using MMA math. We're going to talk about this Macy Chase on fight. Macy Chase on first round's competitive, but Irene Aldana wins. The second round, Chase on takes her down and beats her up. She can't get back up. Macy Chase on's actually not an offensive wrestling threat, and yet she took her down with relative ease and dominates her on the ground. The third round, Macy Chase on takes her down, is beating her on the ground. This thing's two minutes away from a Macy Chase on win where she scored three takedowns, outstruck her, and outworked her. Like, unbelievably embarrassing. And bro, upkick from hell just, like, is like the equivalent of a Hail Mary pass. Like, just boots Chase on in the face, and Irene Aldana hops up and wins. But she could have very well lost that fight. And then we'll give her a pass against Amanda Nunes. But again, your only path to victory is letting your hands go and maybe landing something. And she's so hesitant to throw, worried about the takedown which she inevitably gives up six of them anyways, I don't know that I love it, right? 35 years old, she's reliant on being able to move and landing those big power shots. But if she doesn't get the knockout, I don't know that she can fall on to any real plan B. Rosa, meanwhile, she seems like she's older than she is, but she's only 28 years old. She fights with no ring IQ, not a modicum of clear, sensical thinking in there. I don't know what the hell her coaches are telling her, but there's still something. She had landed 100 significant strikes in three fights, against Laura Procopio, 171, against Vanessa Mello, 120, against Betch Gehea, 125. She hasn't done it in a while. But again, she has the cardio. She does have the, the volume. I think if she fights Irene Aldana, Irene Aldana has the power advantage, no doubt. If it stays standing, it's going to be power versus, hopefully, volume. She needs to be able to come forward. She needs to be able to swarm. She can take Irene's shots, but she needs to return fire with two or three. Don't stand there and stare. She stood there and stared against Yana Kunitskaya, Santos, whatever you want to call her last name now. She stood and stared against Norma Dumont. She stood and stared against Lena Landsberg. She stood and stared. That's all not great, but she's also got that wrestling. And I think the ability to hopefully use the volume to swarm in and mix in the wrestling. I can see her winning this fight. I can see her winning this fight for sure. If it was roles reversed, I would still kind of favor Rosa, but I would probably bet Irene Aldana because she's the underdog. And I would think, hey, big cage, she moves laterally. Carol Rosa will literally just stand in front of her and fight stupid-ass game plan. Why not take that plus money? Both girls can win this fight. Both girls can lose this fight. I would not feel comfortable on either side because it's not a game. You're not controlling them. You've got to have faith that they're going to put the proper game plan forward. Aldana will fight a proper game plan. It just might not matter because she doesn't have the takedown defense. Rosa will do everything in her capabilities to make this thing way tighter than it needs be. But the mixture of the volume and the wrestling, I think she squeaks it out. So uh, dog number two, Carol Rosa. All right, we got Cody Bar- Garbrandt. Sorry, dog number three. Yeah, dog number three for me. Doug Carrosa. For those keeping track at home. Yeah. Um, we've got Cody Garbrandt taking on Brian Kelleher. 
Garbrandt, a minus 190 favorite. Kelleher can be had for plus 165. I mean, skill for skill. Talent for talent. Not even remotely competitive. But every Cody Garbrandt fight, Cody, the, the question mark always becomes if his opponent lands, is that chin going to completely go out? I mean, I suppose against Brian Kelleher, too. If he mixes in, if Cody Garbrandt mixes in the wrestling there, Kelleher's got a pretty nasty guillotine. I suppose that could be a slight risk. It's always the chin. It's always the chin with Garbrandt. That is the biggest concern. I see people taking the, the Brian Kelleher. It opened up at like my, or plus 700 Kelleher by knockout. It's already been steamed down to like plus 425. I don't think there's really any meat on the bone at plus 425 for Kelleher um, in that situation. Cody Garbrandt's way faster on the feet. Um, Kelleher's not like some sort of murderous power puncher either. And we're just coming off of a fight where Garbrandt minded his P's and Q's, took on a guy who also had, you know, you know, some people would consider murderous power punching abilities and Trevin Jones and, Mind his P's and Q's in that fight, stayed out of trouble and showed that like skill for skill, these guys aren't on his level. So I don't know if I, I don't really agree with the Kelleher love. So now go now watch. He's, you know, Kelleher's gonna land one one punch on Cody Garbrandt. He's gonna go full Shannon Ross and you know and die. But no, Garbrandt. Garbrandt for me, buddy. Um he's just skill for skill. I don't think this is even remotely competitive. Um, it's literally, yeah, it's literally people are taking the shot. People are going to fade Cody Garbrandt literally forever moving forward because his chin is definitely a question, but I don't think Brian Kelleher's the guy to really cause him massive problems. So yeah, it's Garbrandt for me. What about you? Yeah, I'm going to agree. And speaking of chins, I think an apology is owed to uh, one Ross, uh, Shannon Ross. Uh, he one... hit the over one and a half, and he did not get knocked out. So <laughs> I, I think the chin checked out mighty fine, Paul Jonathan. He did get knocked out. No, to the body, sure. But, but he did not <laughs> oh, get knocked on. out by a shot. Well, pa, he ate one overhand about... right and, and, and completely collapsed, like immediately off the bell. Against some, I was on the submission, so that's why I'm telling you that. I, I took him by sub because I was just fight. like, this guy doesn't exactly have power. And sure enough, guy with like basically no TKO finishes, he's taking on Shannon Ross. It gets there for them. Yeah. I know. All, 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 all jokes aside, yeah, Shannon Ross, not exactly, you I'm know, winning that the best slap at- fight, by the, by the way, bro. <laughs> you know fight. what? You're not wrong. And if it was like a, a game of body shots, I'm starting to think you might be able to win that one too. Eh, um, I'm pretty soft. Dan Ross is just a little bit fragile. Cody Garbrandt's another one of these cases that he like he, he fights the best guys. Oh, oh, he got oh, he's lost to TJ Dillashaw. Who else has he lost to? Pedro Munoz. All right, I'll give him a pass. Kaka Franske did not look good in that fight. But that fight's at 125. Like, you should have never gone to 125. Especially if you are chinny. Why would you cut an extra 10 pounds, dog? Just the worst decision possible. A 135, he's fast, he's slick, he's got a way superior technical boxing. Guy can't take a great shot, no doubt about it. But I think that goes back to, well, how good is Brian Keller? When was the last time he knocked anybody out? Hunter Azer. And people will point to that fight and be like, he's, that, it's the same game plan. He got worked early, he was slower, he was getting beat up, he lost the first round, and then he chin-checked him in the second. It's like, yeah, fair, but what if you don't chin-check him? He's getting outworked, he's slower, and he's getting beat up. Like, 
The skill's not quite there. And that win, by the way, is one of two knockout wins he has in the UFC, a career that spanned six years. So yeah, you get two knockout wins over the last six years. Is he the guy that's going to go out there and knock out Cody Garbrandt? I'm not sure. Maybe if Cody fights like an idiot, like he did against Pedro Munoz. But like you said, if he minds his P's and Q's and he fights behind his jab and works the perimeter, stays at the outside, he's going to box his face off. If he wants to take him down, he could also take him down. Former state champion out of Ohio in high school. Kick and wrestle. Kids out of a wrestling-heavy gym. Keller's 36. He's got a podcast. He raps a little on the side. He's hugely entertaining. But yeah, the writing's on the wall for him. He's lost his last two fights. He was non-competitive and finished in the first round. He looked disinterested and didn't really look like he even really wanted to be there. And honestly, man, I look at it and it's like, okay, so his last fight against Mario Batista just gets clowned. Batista takes him down twice, is just levels above him, chokes him out. Fair. Umar, okay, Umar, same thing, takes him down, levels above him. We'll give him passes, though. The winner over Kevin Kroom and Domingo Pilarte, both lay and pray. He lay and prayed Domingo Pilarte three takedowns, and he spent 12 minutes and 49 seconds on top of him of a 15-minute fight. 12.49 off three takedowns. Then Kevin Kroom, Six takedowns and six minutes and 26 seconds of, of top game. That's how he's winning, man. He either snatches up a guillotine or he tries to lay and pray Domingo Polarte and Kevin Kroom. Well, I'll tell you something. Those guys are the type of guys that you may be able to get away with lay and pray. They're not going to hold Cody Garbrandt down, out-wrestle him soundly for 15 minutes. What's the game pl- What's the real game plan? Chin check him. That's what everyone keeps saying. Just be tougher. Just be tougher than Cody Garbrandt. Well, they, they don't like Cody Garbrandt. You know, we don't like him. I, I get it. I get it. I don't like Ian Gary. I'm not betting on Ian Gary. It has nothing to do with the personality. People don't like Cody Garbrandt. They just assume a, a small breeze of wind is going to KO the guy. They assume he can't take a punch. They don't like his personality. They don't like his character. That's fine. It doesn't take away from the fact that he's literally better than Brian Kelleher in every aspect of martial arts other than the right durability. Kelleher has that advantage. So, uh, yeah, I guess some people would attack the Kelleher by knockout prop. I would be looking for the Garbrandt, I want to say by decision, uh, because I like Kelleher, and I think Garbrandt minds his P's and Q's and fights a smart fight. But you mentioned earlier in the podcast, it's like the guy's not a quitter. He's not looking for the door, but the door finds him. Brian Kelleher, dude, the door finds him and smacks him right in the ass all the time. So I have a feeling that Garbrandt might be able to finish this thing inside the distance. And therefore, there's no real prop I like on it either. So money line's not great because uh, you're going to be worried about him potentially getting chin checked. People will tell you time and time again. Uh, and the props, I don't really love them because him at his best and Kelleher mid-level or at his worst, he's getting finished. Kelleher at his best, Garbrandt at his best. This thing goes 15, I think. Just don't know if they're going to be at their best. So having trouble putting any confidence behind it. But but the pick, just like you, is going to be no love, Cody Garbrandt. All right, we got Casey O'Neill taking on Ariane Lipsky. O'Neill is a minus 190 favorite. Lipsky can be had for plus 165. Who you got? Yeah, I guess you could see if Dot model it again. I don't feel as comfortable about this one. I feel like Casey O'Neill probably finds a way to get the job done. Um, Lipsky, again, she's had a real nice little career turnaround. She's the KSW champ, highest point of the mountain. Solid little wins in KSW. I mean, future UFC competition. And then just fans out. Now, the last two fights she's been at American Top Team, she's looked way better. No doubt about it. We can talk about that all day and night. Starts off with the J.J. Aldrich fight. Looked a lot better. Melissa Gatto looked a lot better. Looking at both those fights, she is a plus 280 underdog against J.J. Aldrich, and she won. And then she was a plus 190 underdog against Melissa Gatto, and she won. 
I have reason to believe that if you're getting a good price on this, she has a chance to win. Um, in terms of the striking goes, she is the violence queen. She does land some nasty little elbows. She does have some tight little Muay Thai. I don't love her as an elite level striker, but she's certainly competent in the striking. It's the ability to stuff takedowns and keep the fight standing. O'Neal, meanwhile, yeah, I like her. She's a go-getter. She stays in your face. She's aggressive. Against low-level competition, she'll rack up takedowns. Against high-level competition, oh, she hasn't even fought really high-level competition. Against mid-level competition, more volume, less on the takedowns. She got taken down twice herself by Roxanne Modafferi, landed 270 significant strikes, and won a split decision. I don't know why it was a split, but still, somebody in this universe thought she lost the fight because the, it's pitter-patter. There's no real big snapping power on right? And the takedowns, if you're not mixing it in and spending time on top, you're leaving it subjective. And then in that last fight against Jennifer Maya, I could tell you straight up, flim-flam striking and volume is not going to get it done against a girl that fought for a world title, who comes from shoot-to-box, who's flat-footed and plodding, but moves forward and can eat one hell of a punch. So the game plan should be take her down. And yet, she makes no attempt to take the fight to the ground, as if she doesn't want to go to the ground with Jennifer Maya, who's also a BJJ black belt. So there was hesitancy to me there. It's like, where is she most comfortable? On the ground? Whereas that's where she looked comfortable early in her career. And now she's switched to striking mode where she's trying to strike with everybody. There's like a little bit of problem in getting comfortable. And, and she's been in Vegas now. I don't think she's fully comfortable with extreme couture yet. She's getting there. She's putting the work in. But it's just like everything takes time, you know? 26 takes time they've thrown her in there against tough competition because she's pretty and she's marketable and she talks an excellent game but she needs nurturing and just being built up Lipsky was in the same problem they gave her tough matchups because they thought she was a little more advanced than she was she had to get the losses she had to get the setbacks she's come back as a better version of herself so when I look at minus 190 that's the issue it's not that I don't think O'Neill can win it's just she's a damn near two to one favorite over somebody that could very easily keep this fight standing and give her a competitive striking battle women's MMA probably going to be tight probably going to be competitive probably going to go 15 minutes if that's the case why would I pay minus 190 for one competitor I, I don't know now as I say this it's like all right kid pull the the trigger on the dog pick Lipsky's come twice as an underdog and we've hit we hit one of them. We hit the Gato fight anyways. I didn't have the Aldridge fight. I hit the Gato fight anyways. Um, why not keep the train rolling? I go back to the takedowns. I really do. Like, O'Neal, come on, dude. Who's coaching her? Look her in the eye. Look at the game tape. There is a clear path of victory here. You need to go and you need to follow it. And if she doesn't follow the takedowns, which is fine, I guess, the plan B, which is just Stormer with volume, I don't mind it either. Because Jennifer Maya, she got outstruck, she got beat, but she landed 137. The fight before that with Roxanne Monteferi, I lied when I said 270. 229, that's still pretty impressive. Her fight with Shevchenko, yeah, I guess it was only 52 through, you know, not even two rounds. She could put up that big volume. Lipsky's not. She put up 101 against J.J. Aldridge. That's a career high. Everything else has been fairly low. If you can take her down, neutralize her when you are standing, swarm her, probably end up getting a points victory. So I'm going to go end up going with O'Neal by decision. Yeah, just don't feel super confident about it because Lipsky's, uh, you know, she, she's a live underdog, no doubt. I think she's made, I think Lipsky's made some pretty serious improvements since getting absolutely mollywopped by my girl Cab. Um, last few times out there. <laughs> I mean, she's, it feels like all of, all of those skills, maybe maybe she started like really really taking it seriously. I don't know. I don't know what goes on behind the curtain or whatever. But 
the J.J. Aldrich fight, 100, 101 significant strikes mixed in the takedowns, probably her most complete performance. Um, Melissa Gatto, it was a split decision win, but like Gatto is a very, very physical, strong, decent opponent. Like She was a big underdog in that spot. Gato um, went 0 for 7 on takedowns in that fight, too. So it's like not like she wasn't trying to get her down. Just Lipsy's takedown defense has improved. Casey O'Neill lost the takedown game against Roxanne Mataferi, 2 to nothing. Mm. Sure, she put up 200 yeah. significant strikes, but it's like there really isn't much behind those strikes. So it's like I think Lipsky can just like kind of barrel through them, make this ugly, make this dirty. Um, she, she loves throwing the elbows from the inside, from the clinch. I guess if she's inside, she does run the risk of getting taken down. But I don't know. I haven't really seen much from uh, Casey O'Neill's wrestling game to be too, too afraid of, of it. I know that when she gets top control, when she gets into, like, mount, she has decent ground and pound. Um, that is obviously a massive risk for Lipsky here, but... Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna enact the CF DOP model here again, Cody. Uh, Arion Lipsky is the pick for me. Uh, we got Dustin Jacoby taking on Alonzo Menafield. Jacoby, a minus three hundred favorite. Menafield can be have a plus two fifty. Another line that moved even further towards Jacoby. I feel like it's too much, Cody. I feel like yeah, it's, it's far it's too much. Manafield does gas. It is a little bit ugly sometimes. Jacoby is obviously the more experienced kickboxer of the two of them. But I don't know. Anytime you have a, a guy with the power that Alonzo Manafield has, and, and he's got a pretty well-rounded skill set, even though the cardio isn't always there, he's super, super dangerous early in the fight, so... Plus 250 on Alonzo Menafield is awfully tempting, Cody. What's what's your take here? Yeah, well, I, I'm on the camp with Dustin Jacoby here, and I think the price looked a lot better earlier in the week, but it was like one of those, yeah, he's the favorite, but he's value compared to all these big favorites on the card, and he feels just as safe, if not safer, than some of the big favorites on the card. So load up on Dustin Jacoby, and it looks like people are. But yeah, minus 300, it's going to be striker versus striker. You're taking on a guy in Menafield, again, who has a ton of power. Like, if you're worried about Cody Garbrandt getting chin-checked, you're going to have a similar worry here. Justin Jacoby is a better striker. He will be winning the striking exchanges, but you're playing with fire because you're playing into your opponent's best path of victory, which is maybe catching you with some lightning and folding you over. But, yeah, listen, man, I'm a big Justin Jacoby guy. He's got glory kickboxing experience. He's put in his time. For a light heavyweight, the guy's got remarkable cardio and that he can just push a good pace, throw a whole lot of volume. They want to match him up with strikers if you match him up with grapplers maybe that would be the path to beating him but menafield for as physically strong as he is not big on takedowns yeah he'll push you into the cage and try to control you but he's not really big on his like getting you to the ground and holding you to the ground he just wants to lumber forward and land those big shots that's fine and good but against jacoby a much better striker in a big cage with room to operate i think he just dissects him we know he's got the cardio advantage he talked about it but I think having that cardio advantage is allowing him to just keep racking up numbers, and you're going to see Alonzo Menafield start off hot. Oh, though that shot just missed. Oh, Menafield looks like he's still in it. To eventually, he's going to start getting more desperate and more desperate and fade away. And then it could be a late TKO by Dustin Jacoby, or it could be a decision win by Dustin Jacoby. But 
When I look at Jacoby, uh, again, his last fight with Kenny Jaquu, he gets a first-round knockout. Kenny's been all types of durable, and he folds him over. That one was nice. This fight with Azmat Merzikhanov, you know, it's a competitive fight. He got outstruck 67-64. to 64. He was in it. It was a very close competitive fight. The fight before that with Khalil Roundtree, I thought he got robbed. He outstruck Roundtree 120-85, to 85, including outstriking him by the numbers in all three rounds. It was a split decision. A lot of people thought that Dustin Jacoby won. And now you've got Roundtree wins last weekend and is calling for a title shot against Pereira. Like, Roundtree's in it. He's at a high level. Jacoby should have gotten that win. It would have looked a lot better on his resume. He's still capable of competing with some of the best guys, some of the most dangerous strikers. Menafield's not that. He's not young. He is improving, but not by marginal leaps and bounds. And yeah, Jacoby's a little bit older. He's been in a few too many gym wars. He's had a lot of pro fights. Somebody's going to chin check him at some point and break on through. It'll happen. It happens to everybody. I just, I'm not going to bet on Menafield to be the guy to do it right now. As we talked about Jacoby getting robbed in fights with the likes of Khalil Roundtree, Menafield, he beat Jimmy Crute twice, right? Well, actually, the one was a draw. He got taken down six times. The second one, he beats Crute, he subs him, and Crute just retires right after the fight. Not the same Jimmy Crute. Misha Cherkinov, he's cut. Asker Mazarov, not the guy that lied about his record and then got cut immediately. Okay. And then he lost to William Knight, who knocked him down and took him down. He's got wins over Ed Herman and Fabio Chirot. Which one of these guys are the strikers? Which one of these guys are like the impressive going somewhere? None of them. Jimmy Crude, I like Jimmy Crude a lot, but clearly Jimmy Crude wasn't what he was supposed to be or... You know, his headspace just wasn't where it was at. So on paper, they look like nice wins, but it wasn't like, I don't know. One's a draw, terrible draw. And then one is a, uh, you, you choked a kid that doesn't think he belongs anymore. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I'm just saying Dustin Jacoby's fighting at a higher level. He appears to have the better skill set. He has the better cardio. It's striker versus striker, and he's a better striker. Yeah, he's the pick. He's the pick for sure. You don't love it because it's minus 300. I get it, but he's still the pick. Okay. Uh, we got... Tajir Ulambekov taking on Cody Durden. Tajir is a minus 170 favorite. Durden could be half a plus 150. Cody Durden has had a nice little, little career resurgence here. Um, well, he's on like a four-fight winning streak. Relying a lot on his wrestling. And frankly, you know, against the likes of J.P. Buys, Carlos Moto, Mark Mota, Charles Johnson, who's not a horrible opponent, but um, obviously very exploitable in the wrestling game. And then the Jake Hadley fight, I think, because Hadley was kind of like a highly touted prospect. That one, I feel like, you know, we saw that like Cody Durden is definitely coming into his own. His style against somebody from the Habib Nurmagomedov Dagestani wrestling camp. I'm not. I've never really been a Tajir guy, you know. On this show, I've always said that like he seems to lack like a lot of the the strength and athleticism that Islam Makachev and Habib and and Umar uh, seem to have in their in their game. Tajir is a little bit skinny, doesn't seem to be able to absolutely completely dominate guys in a lot of positions. I guess the Tim Elliott fight is where that got exploited. I just think the way that Cody Durden wins fights is going to be difficult in this stylistic matchup. So I'm going to go with Tajir to get the job done here. What about you? Yeah, I hate myself for saying this, but I'm going to take Cody Durden. Interesting. Uh, I know, I know, I know, I know. 
Might as well make a Cody and Cody parlay this weekend because I think they're both going to get the job done. But with Durden, like, I never bet on him, and he's on a four-fight winning streak, so, like, clearly he's not my guy. Now I'm jumping on him. Chances are he's going to look absolutely atrocious. But, like, if you're going to get underdog money on him, he's a live underdog to go out there and get the job done. Now, this one pains me because not only do I not particularly care for Cody Durden, I really like to gear Ula Bekov. This, my boy. But this is why this is the exact fight that normally costs me a ton of money. I'm too high on one kid who's not even a Russian prospect. He's a 33-year-old, bodies banged up to bits, flyweight, taking on a guy that I don't care for, but he's a big, strong former state champion wrestler who's coming into his own. I go too high on Ulan Bekov and I get crushed. Looking to avoid that. So, okay, we'll start with Tagir. Why don't we love Tagir? Well, first of all, guys... He's two and a half years younger than Habib Nurmagomedov, right? That's important because all those old pictures that you see in Dagestan where they're up in the mountains and he's just a kid, it's like they're both just kids. They both started off at basically the same point. He's two and a half years younger than Habib, and yet Habib's retired. Habib's been retired for three years. So Ulan Bekov isn't this next generation, this next wave. He's 33 years old, man. He's already gotten to that point. I don't know that he's necessarily making any of these huge improvements. What you see is, in fact, what you get. And when you see him fight in Russia, he's just takedowns and scrambles and cardio and bam, bam, bam. They're not even drug testing over there. Comes over to America and he gets Bruno Silva. He's a big favorite over Bruno Silva. I load up on him. I love the kid. He's a minus 500 favorite, okay? He gets outstruck by Bruno Silva. He got taken down three times by Bruno Silva. He damn near fucking lost that fight. I know I just swore. Megan, time code. Damn near damn. almost loses that fight. I think I dropped an F-bomb. I was getting too heated, okay? He squeezes by Bruno as a minus 500 favorite on the basis of winning two of the three rounds, but damn, dude, it's close. And takedown defense was not on point, so a little bit problematic. Then he gets the Alan Nascimento fight, right? Same thing. He gets four takedowns. He lands less than 20 significant strikes. Nascimento threatens with the, the submission game. He ends up squeaking by a split decision in a fight. Dude, he could have lost. The writing's on the wall. He could be 0-2 in the UFC. In fact... Mimi, he should be 0-2 in the UFC. And he runs into Tim Elliott. And would you be surprised to find out that he was a minus 250 favorite over Tim Elliott? No, because everybody likes him. He's Russian. He's uh, once beaten. He's Khabib's boy. He's got the Sambo. He's got the Dagestan. He's got everything. Great. We love it. But it's not It's not necessarily translating. Tim Elliott takes him down a bunch, outstrikes him, knocks him down, clean knockdown, and takes him down, outscrambles him. Wins the fight. Not good. Comes back and beats Nate Maness. Okay. Secondary problem, okay? Secondary problem. He's been in the UFC for three years. In those three years, he's fought three times in the UFC. But he's pulled out of six fights. He has pulled out of six fights. Pulled out of this Alexander Dolcelichek fight uh, he, in 2000, 2020. Sorry. He pulled out of a Matus Nikolaou fight. They rebooked the Matus Nikolaou fight two months later, and he pulled out again. They booked him against Tyson Nam three months after that, and he pulled out. After he fought Tim Elliott, they booked him against Tyson Nam again. He pulled out due to an injury. And then he just pulled out of a fight with Jake Hadley four months ago. Six pullouts over the last three years. Now, so he's 33. Guys that were training with him up in the mounds, they're all retired. He's pulled out of six fights due to health-related issues. 
I don't think he's at his best anymore. He's not. In, and, and what was him at his best? He's an offensive takedown machine. Great. But he's not holding guys down. Khabib's holding you down. Makachev holds you down. Hamzat Shmaev holds you down. This guy's taking you down. And then almost certainly they scramble back up to their feet. So it's a big problematic. The thing is, though, is that his takedown defense is not matching the offense. He's there to get taken down. Bruno Silva's taking him down. Yeah. I, I would say that it's a little it's a little bit troubling at the very least. Now, Durden, again, I don't really love Durden by any stretch, but the reason I didn't love Durden is he's a one-round guy. He comes out there and he tries to wrestle you, power wrestle you, for one round. I don't like it. And Chris Gutierrez, he wrestled him for one round. Thankfully, the judges gave him a 10-8 in that round, which they shouldn't have. No damage, just control. And then he loses the second and third because he gassed. He gasses in almost all of his losses. But to his credit, at some point, dude, he turns the corner. Turns the corner, doesn't gas anymore. And so now he's starting to rack up takedowns and he can fight later into fights. He doesn't necessarily just have to win the first two and hold on. He can kind of push a little bit. The fight with Charles Johnson, who definitely can't wrestle, he got 11. The fight with Jake Hadley, four. Carlos Moda, four. JP Bizey just flat out knocked him out. This fight with the Richie Lang, five. He's racking them up, man. He's chain wrestling him. He's strong. His striking is starting to get not good, but serviceable. That... Ulan Bekov's not just going to blow the brakes off him standing. I mean, Makayev did, I suppose, but not likely. I think his striking is good enough to keep him in the exchanges. But Ulan Bekov's been tiring. Ulan Bekov normally likes to have his way. And if you put an old-fashioned grind right back on him, guy's body's not where it should be. Guy's pulled out of six fights over the last three years, all due to health complications or injuries. Like, live underdog Cody Durden. Now, last but not least, because we're talking about Ulan Bekov, uh health issues, Durden actually pulled out his last fight against Bruno Silva, of all people. He wasn't medically cleared, but I think that had to do with more. He got a suspension after the Hadley fight, and he had accepted this fight on a quick turnaround and then couldn't get cleared. So I don't think he's banged up. I don't think he's got like any major health issue. Dan Levy might know. He's boys with him. Should give uh, my boy Dan Levy a shout. Um but outside of that, like, yeah, I think live underdog Cody Durden squeaks this one out. If you're real greasy, if you're the greasy type of better, I think a split decision on either side. I and mean, someone's going to win this fight. But I think it's going to be one of those super greasy, tight, they're going to exchange takedowns. They're going to exchange scrambles. They're going to exchange some shots. They're both going to get gassed out. But the crowd's going to be chanting USA the entire time. And Cody Durden's going to squeak out a split decision. Trust me, dude, when I was in Nashville against the Hadley fight, they were hot for him. He's from Georgia. It was in Tennessee. I get it. But uh, he feeds off the crowd, dude. The guy rises to the occasion. So I, I'm going to say Cody Durden will be underdog number four for me. Card's going to be in Vegas. Crowd suck there, let's be honest. Yeah, but at least it's not the Apex. This it's is a definitely, nice looking better card. Than the, it's a better situation than the Apex. But it's like any Vegas card, it's like... People are, they're at the slot machine. They're at the, they're at the one-armed bandit, you know, throwing their, throwing their, all, all of their cash in there. It's, uh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't factor in the crowd at a, a Vegas card all that much for being too much influence, particularly on the early prelims. It just, they get fights I all went, the time. They just don't care. That's how it yeah, is. Yeah, I went to, uh, I went to Rosie's last fight against Amanda Nunez. Uh, Cody Garbrandt was on the card too, actually. It was Dominic Cruz. Anyways, it was in Vegas, T-Mobile. I think it was the first UFC card in the T-Mobile. And it was New Year's Eve. So there's people from out of town that wouldn't normally be there. 
ended it was a dead crowd. You're not wrong. <laughs> it wasn't a great. And that's crowd. New that Year's Eve. This that. is. I know that's New Year's Eve. This is like mid December. Uh, <laughs> Everyone's going on vacation in a couple of weeks. Like it's gonna be. The, There's people the main, there. The main they just card, don't get excited. The main card will be lit. Like that's just how it is in Vegas. But like the early prelims. Like I went to like 15 different 15 event. That's an absolute overstatement. But I went for like five straight years. I would go for like International Fight Week. I've been to. Because they, they used to do like two or three yeah. events during International Fight Week back in the day. They would do, uh, yeah. but they would have the pay per view, and then like the following day, they would have like the finale for like the Ultimate Fighter. Um, Dude, I saw like BJ Penn. Right. I saw BJ Penn. You plus. watched the first death in MMA, man. Oh my god, BJ Penn versus Frankie Edgar yeah, three. Oh, that was rough. Oh. And like, yeah, like a super nasty hangover. Oh. It was on like a Sunday. It was very. It was a very strange setup. But uh, but yeah, long story short, the early prelims of those cards. Maybe it's different at T-Mobile. In fairness, like I was, uh, it was at like the MGM Grand, like when they used to hold it. Uh, in that venue, maybe it's a little bit better. I don't know, but um, yeah, the early prelims of all of those cards was like kind of pathetic. Like nobody, nobody except for like me and like Kent Carter were like there for like the deep, deep prelims. Uh, lost a whole bunch of money on Scoggins one year on the deep prelims. There, um, that was a trend that continued over the course of Justin Scoggins' career. But I digress. We move on. We've got. Uh, Andre Touchy-Feely taking on Lucas Almeida, minus 170 for Feely, plus 150 for Almeida, who you got? Yeah, I'm going to keep this one simple. I'm going to go with Feely again. One of these don't love it. And it just comes down to Feely's a 50-50 guy, man. When he's on, he is on. He's capable of hanging with some of the better guys. When he's not on, boy, oh boy, he's not on. Largely inconsistent. And inconsistency is the name of the game. Since his UFC debut 10 years ago, he's never rallied, rallied off more than two in a row. It's win one, lose one, win two, win two, or win two, lose two, win one, lose one, no contest, lose one, win one, lose one. It's always just been largely very much dealing with those inconsistencies. He's getting a little bit older. I don't know that he ever really got to that level that he's supposed to be at. And his wins, I mean, I guess outside of Bill Aljeo, ah, he's got nice wins. Charles Jordan, Bill Aljeo, Shaba Marias. Then the losses, you know, they're, they're step-ups. They're tough guys. Like, he's been a good gatekeeper-type guy, but he's slowly just fallen into that role where he's a gatekeeper-type guy. When I look at Lucas Almeida, there's nothing super impressive about him. He's a banger, no doubt about it. He gave an okay account of himself on the Contender Series against Daniel Zellhuber. He beat Michael Drazano, dog-walked him the entire time, um, did a good job, scored two knockdowns in that fight. But he's super hittable, okay? He walks on a straight line, linearly right at you, He's there to get hit all day. And Trezano knocked him down. Trezano was having some success. He just can't handle the heat of this guy coming forward. Trezano never tried to take him down. That's where you mix it up. And Pat Sabatini showed in the very next fight, he can't grapple, man. His takedown defense is suspect. His grappling defense is suspect. So Feely's got multiple paths to victory. Standing, he's got very good footwork. He moves well. He uh, Again, he's going to have the big cage. He'll be able to operate. He's got a nice jab. He throws little one-twos, he sets traps, he minds his P's and Q's. Almeida will try to buzzsaw him the same way Joannison Brito did, but that's tough to do, man. I think he's just going to be chasing more often than not. Feely will have success because you don't have to throw much to hit this guy. He's he's just standing right there to get hit. Feely hits him, Feely scores some points, Feely mixes in that wrestling. He can definitely wrestle, 
He likes to score uh, takedowns in the majority of his fights. He's beaten tough guys like the aforementioned Charles Jordan by mixing in the wrestling. This would be a case in point, perfect example, to strike a little bit and mix in the wrestling. Score a couple takedowns, secure those rounds, win a decision. So I'm going to take Feely by decision. I don't really have much to add there, buddy. Uh, you bring up a lot of good points. I think he does have, you know, he's very, very well-versed at this point. We've kind of seen Andre Feely grow up in front of us. He's taken his licks. He's taken his, he's been the ups and downs, but he's become a pretty well-rounded fighter and uh, taken on much harder competition over the course of his career than Almeida. Can't hurt uh, that, you know, his buddy Josh Emmett, is on this card as well. I'm sure that they put in a lot of time together getting ready for uh, Saturday night as well. So all engines, hopefully, in theory, are firing at Team Alpha Male. Uh, Feely is the pick for me as well. We got Martin Budai taking on Shamil Gaziev. Martin Budai is a minus 140 favorite. Gaziev can be had for plus 120. Who you got? Gonna go with Martin Budai. Uh Shamil Gaziev, like again, one of these guys that on paper it looks good. He's from Dagestan. He knows how to wrestle. He's 260 pounds. He's got a 78 a 70 inch long reach. He's actually beaten a couple decent guys in the regional scene. And he's undefeated. Like, what, what's what's there not to like about this guy? But Gaziev could very well be Shamil Gaziev. I don't think he's got a cardio. I don't think he's got a gas tank at all. And so, mostly beats guys fairly early. You saw him in the contender series against Greg Velasco. Velasco's not very good. I don't rate him. Subs him in the first round. Went over Darko Stoicic. One fight before. Stoicic fought in the UFC. Stoicic is former KSW uh, standout. Not bad, but Stoicic's not a heavyweight, dude. He's like five foot nine. Like, I don't know. Just again, they're, they're wins that don't look bad on paper, but I don't know that it is applicable to this fight with Martin Budai. It's the fight with Kirill Kamalov, right? Uh, Aries FC7. <clears throat> it's only a year ago. Man, this guy gasses out. Like, he takes Kamalov down. He's built as a striker. He is not a striker, okay? He clubs you with an overhand right and tries to charge in and close the distance. That's all. He's got no footwork. He's super lumbering. He doesn't keep his hands up high. They're just low, and he's looking a pot shot. But he gets a takedown over a tall, long-rangey kickboxer fair. Second round, he's gas, man. He gets caught in a Kimura. He gives up position. He loses the second round. Uh, he gets a takedown late in it, but he's just running on fumes. And in the third round, he is, again, running on fumes, getting chopped up, holds him up against the cage. It's a bad fight. And I, to me, that's what he looks like when you get him out of the first round. Most guys don't get him out of the first round because he's fighting, I don't want to call them putzes, but... One and one guys, two and oh guys, guys that are not ready to take on a 260 pound Dagestan wrestling champion. But it sounds better than it is. He's not that good, man. His wrestling's not that good. His striking's not that good. Striking's actually bad. We'll call it a bad. And his cardio's not quite there. So, so what he beat Greg Velasco first round, rear naked choke? Like, is he going to choke up Budai in the first round? I'll tell you something. He better hope he does. Because if he doesn't, Martin Budai going to beat on him. So I got Budai pre-fight flop. I also think Budai may be live after round one if he loses the first round, but he's still there. But one thing I'll give him is that he's walking around at like 280 pounds. He's 6'4", 280, cuts down to 266. He's got cardio, man. The guy can fight. The guy largely relies on cage control. He's got some decent volume. He can push a pace. And uh, I, I like what he brings to the table in terms of he is a mid to low level heavyweight. But he's, he's, he's got the gas tank. He's got the ability to kind of swarm on some of these guys. 
Um, he didn't look great in his debut against Lucas Burchowski. Sorry, the second fight against Lucas Burchowski. Should have lost that guess, fight. He maybe should have lost that fight on the basis of he got outstruck almost Clem- two to one. It but was he was a just really holding him up decision, against. The, let's be honest. Well, he was holding him up against the cage, sure. And then he fights Jake Collier, another close decision, but he lands ninety-eight significant strikes. And then his last fight against Josh Parisian. He gets an early, uh, easy money takedown early in the first. Sets up a Kimura. He landed forty-two significant strikes in four minutes and eleven seconds of action. Less than one round, he's going to eclipse 50 significant strikes in the first round alone, and it didn't look like he was even breaking his sweat. He's a big boy, and to fight him is going to tax you because what's the game plan? To try to take him down? To try to, to clinch with him? He loves the clinch. He loves just hanging out in the clinch. So where's Gaziev going to thrive in this fight? If he doesn't take him down, he's going to hang in the clinch, and he's going to gas. If he doesn't take him down, he will die trying. And if he's forced to strike with them for any period of time, it's not going to go good for him. Try to club him a few times here and there, but he's going to be fighting with his hands low, huffing and puffing, hoping to get some desperation takedowns. If he does complete the takedown fair, it's going to be Martin Budai's opportunity, or it's up to him to work his way back up. But if he does work his way back up, if Gaziev does get the takedown, all of this is tiring, dude. You want to throw around a 280-pound guy, 6'4"? Is this a 15-minute type of game plan? Or is this the kind of thing that you've been able to get away with for four minutes on the regional scene? Yeah, I think so. I think so. In a fight that he's likely going to get stretched, I don't see it going good for him. So I got Buddha. I got Buddha to take him out down the stretch, probably by TKO or a sloppy decision. But in both scenarios, tight for the first round, and then you'll start to see Martin Buddha pull away and hopefully secure the victory. So I will go with him. Slight favorite status. I think Buddha sucks, man. I wouldn't bet him. Maybe he a, does. I wouldn't Maybe bet him as a come. favorite, man. Like those fights that he's had in the UFC. I I, I bet in in full disclosure, I bet uh Gazia plus one thirty five before it moved to like plus one fifteen. But like he Budai is scraping by the bottom of the barrel. I mean, I guess he did get the first round finish against Parisian. The the Collier fight Well, that's bottom of the barrel. That it, that is absolute lying. bottom of the <laughs> barrel. Lion. Um the Collier fight was incredibly competitive. A lot of people thought Jay Collier uh, should have won that fight. Incredible low volume against Barnett where he had all of the physical advantages humanly possible in that fight. Um, you know, height, reach, uh, everything. Um, wasn't able to put away Chris Barnett. Like, I really don't think that this is some sort of high-level competitor um and then the Breschke fight frankly he really should have lost that fight like he got doubled up on significant strikes and that's an undersized um heavyweight in Lucas Breschke who frankly after that fight has gotten not very good dog walked and absolutely dominated so it's like I don't know Gaziev is in the gym with Cyril Gom one of his main training partners I mean maybe he should do a better job of teaching uh Gon how to wrestle because that hasn't really all come together. So there's probably a little bit of truth to that, that like maybe this guy's not all that, I suppose. But I don't know. I It's one of the, for me, I looked at it and I say, these guys kind of both look like bottom level, uh, bottom level heavyweights. I have plus 136, I believe. Um, I took the underdog just because in fairness to... Gaziev, and I know you know nobody's really taken Martin Budai down, but you go through that list of opponents that he's had, and just like nobody's really tried to take him down. So we'll see if he's able to stop that first takedown. Uh, if he isn't, 
could be Gazi of all day. So uh, finally, we got Randy Brown taking on Muslim Salikov. Randy Brown, a minus two sixty favorite. Salikov can be half a plus two twenty. Who you got? Yeah, I, I got. I'm gonna rifle through this one, hit you with the PRP, and then get out of here. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I just I, I tend to favor Randy Brown. I actually like the guy. He's very long. He's figured out how to use that length, use that jab. I wouldn't say he's a huge volume guy, but he's capable of being a volume guy. Against Jared Gooding, he landed 115. That's probably his best performance. Against Chaos Williams, 93. Plays the perimeter. Works better when you give him the big cage, which he'll have to work with. And again, he's just leg kicks, jabs. Leg kicks, jabs. Good work rate. Stays out of harm's way. Ground game has definitely evolved. He is a capable grappler. It's just you don't want to throw him into like the deep end of, of talent. You know, He got smoked by Jack Madeleine. Those guys will beat him. Jared Gooden, solid. Chaos Williams, decent. Francisco Trinaldo, ageless wonder of the world. Wellington Terman, trash. But he's, you know, he's capable of hanging with that mid to upper mid-level range of guys. Muslim Salikov, meanwhile, you know, he's the Kung Fu King. The guy's got crazy knockouts. He'll spin, he'll land. The fact is, is that he's 40 years old and that explosiveness is slowing down. It's diminished. He doesn't have the volume. It's quite simple as that. All of his fights in the UFC generally uh, finishes. But even when they go 15 minutes, 63 significant strikes against Leonardo Steropoli. Actually had to rely on his wrestling in that fight because he was tired. Uh, his fight with Zaleski Dos Santos, split decision, he had landed 40. His fight with Trinaldo went the distance. He landed 62. That's his career high, 62. I don't think it's going to get him done here. His last fight with Nicholas Dalby is a classic example. He starts off well. He's got those flashy strikes. I scored the first round for Muslim Solikov. I think a lot of people scored the first round for Muslim Salikov. The second and the third round, he's done, dude. He's done. He just you can't twirl and spin and throw absolute heat when you're 40 and you fight once a year. Like it's not, it just it doesn't work for him. So I feel like he's got a guy here in Brown that it's gonna be hard to time him and catch him with those strikes because he's so tall and he's so long. Yeah, you've got more power than him, but if he goes out and he lands 65-70, are you gonna land 65-70? Not likely. Uh, grappling, I think that plays towards Brown. Wrestling probably plays towards Brown. Clinch game, Solikov's no slouch in the clinch, but again, the clinch game's tiring, and if you can tire this guy out, you'll have even more success in the stand department. So, Randy Brown's just younger, faster, more athletic, chips away at him, gets the job done. Solikov, yeah, dude, he could, he could KO anybody if he lands one of those dynamite kicks to the face, but it's low probability, so I gotta go Randy Brown. Tempted to just go Randy Brown by decision, because again, Solikov's not doesn't have durability issues and Brown's not exactly some, you know, potent finisher, but it's MMA. It's a hot card. It's early in the night. Like I could see it finishing. I would just think Brown chops him up with leg kicks and jabs from the outside and secures a 29, 28 or a 30, 27 decision. So Brown by decision, looking at the card total, we are going to go. Oh, you're not going to let me answer. (laughs) Oh yeah. Sorry. No, my bad. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding with you, but like, I don't really have much to add to it. I think, uh, Salikov is a little bit long in the tooth, a little bit slow. Randy Brown has all the physical advantages in terms of having an eight-inch reach advantage. It's like five, six inches taller than him. It's going to be tough for Salikov to, you know, the Sultan of Spin to land one of those big ones. Um, unless Brown is just gets way in too close and gets himself caught. Like, I think it's a pretty rough matchup. Maybe Salikov could have a slight wrestling advantage, but that's not something I actually want to bet on or bank on. Um, so I'm with you. Randy Brown is the pick for me as well. Hit him with the PRP. All right. It's a greasy PRP this week. Uh, we're going with Leon Edwards. We're going with Brandon Royval, dog number one. Shafkat Rachmaninoff, 
Patty Pimblett, Vincente Luque, dog number two. Bryce Mitchell, Carol Rosa, dog number three. Cody Garbrandt, Casey O'Neill. I could flip on that one, but we'll wait until weigh-ins. Uh, Dustin Jacoby, Cody Durden, dog number four. Andre Feely, Martin Budai, Randy Brown. Again, I think weigh-ins are going to be telling for a couple of the fighters on this card, so definitely want to watch it. And there's some greasy ones up and down. If there was a fight next week, I'd offer you a shoey bet on Budai Gaziev, but... You know, if we do a holiday episode, great. If we end up missing it, then what am I going to wait till the new year, three weeks from now for Shuey? I don't know. But yeah, it's, uh, bad. it's a bad Shuey position that we're in right now. It's a bad I considered Shoei it position. for that exact fight as well. But uh, we'll, we'll totally. I mean, we we came into this week's episode almost forgetting, and the fight card was last week. So we're it's getting old. A, it's and been forgetful. a long year. <laughs> yeah, it's been yeah. a long year. It's been a grind. And but again, there's one more episode. Fourteen fights. Let's go out there and hopefully make the best of it. So I got some making up to do from last weekend. Oof, so bad. But uh, again, this is my last chance of 2023. So hopefully I can go out on a high note. Yes, sir. All right. That is it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. For producer Megan and Cody Safdick, I'm Paul Shaughnessy saying goodbye. Good luck. Oh, oh, oh.